right, get your um, Bibles out today. We're going to get eventually to 1 Samuel chapter 4, so get there. But before we get there, let me uh, share my heart. I know Pastor Kevin shared last Sunday, and I know he did a marvelous job as always. Uh, and I know he shared some disappointing news with you all, as he shared with me earlier. So just keep that whole thing in prayer. But we bless them and love them and, and uh, are behind them as they're dealing with their family situation. Um, but I wanted to give you a little volley from my heart as he got to share his heart. I was down in Charleston with my lovely bride, and we were ministering at the uh, Legacy Church there. Um, but just to highlight again, Pastor, why would you do a series called Abandoned by God? Uh, the devastating results of national rebellion. How many of you know part of what we should be doing in the church is speaking about relevant things? And sometimes we get talking about, we get a wrong definition of relevance. We think relevant just means giving nice messages that make everybody happy. How many of you know if your house is burning down, you don't need a happy message? You need someone to tell you, get out of your house, you're going to die. Uh, you don't need a, a, a nice little card saying, everything's awesome. Um, and I just want to tell you this, when you look at the convulsing things that are happening across America today, it's not because of global warming, okay? We, got, we, have, we have historic flooding in Louisiana. We have a drought that is historic out in California. We got parts of our nation that are on fire right now. We have more race clashes and racial unrest than I think we've had since I've been alive in this country right now. We've got our inner cities that are smoking cauldrons of, of uh, unrest. Um, we have a national debt that is higher than we've ever, ever, ever had by a mile. Um, we have a, you know, it, John Calvin said, you can tell the judgment of God by the leaders that he gives you. Uh, just look at this election and scratch your head and tell me if we are not under the judgment of God. Um, I'm just telling you, if you will look around with eyes wide open, you will see that America is not in a good place as a nation. And as Americans, as people who live here, as people who love the Lord and are called to serve and bless our community and be the church, we need to understand the times in which we're living in. In fact, Jesus was very serious about this. If you look in the, uh, prior to even Christ, you look in the Old Testament under the sons of Issachar, it said about them, this was how they were praised. These guys know how to understand what's going on and then what to do about it. How many of you know that's, that's called wisdom? To, to be able to discern what's happening and then not just to go, oh, wow, we're in trouble, but to know what to do about it. That's the important part. You remember when Jesus was talking to the scribes and Pharisees and he said, you guys think you're so smart. He says, you look out and you look at the sky and you can tell if it's a red sky in the morning, it's going to be bad weather. If it's a you know, red sky at night, it's going to be good weather, whatever. He said, you know how to discern all these natural signs. He said, but you don't have a clue about how to discern what's going on spiritually. So how many of you know we can take from those passages that it's important that God's people know what's going on now? And we, we usually re interpret those passages like the end times. You know, you can discern what's going to happen at the end times. But I don't think it's, and then we think in terms of Christ's second coming. I think that's where we make our mistake. God wants you to know what season you're living in now. We don't know when the end is coming. We don't know when Christ is returning. But you, but you should not be clueless in your generation. You should have an idea, like, what's going on? Because we're supposed to be able to order our lives and prioritize our lives around what is happening. There, the Bible says there's times for rejoicing, there's times for mourning, right? I mean, you've got to know what's going on. You don't show up at somebody's funeral, come in dancing and laughing and giggling. That would be viewed as irreverent. It's, it's great emotion, wrong setting. 
It's the same thing when a nation is experiencing the judgment of God. That's not the time to be running around saying, peace, peace, everything's great. It's the time to be sounding some warnings. And so the purpose of this message, this is not, and I hear my heart. In fact, when I, when I sensed God was saying, preach on this, I was like, Lord, no, we just got done with generosity, and we're in a happy time. And now we're talking about something heavy. But how many of you know, we have to talk about heavy things. Not to get under it. I don't want anybody to leave feeling, oh my gosh, you know, what is happening? We're abandoned by God. No, that's not the purpose of this message. In fact, just the opposite. I want you to feel the sense of God's pleasure and presence more than you ever have in the midst of what's going on so that we can be part of the solution. Every time there's judgment, God's judgment is always uh, restorative in nature. In other words, it's always redemptive. He's, his purpose is never... How many of you have ever given your kids a swat on the behind, and then the very next thing that follows the swat is you hug them? Why are you hugging them? Because what you're trying to communicate is not, I don't like you, that's why I paddled you on the behind. It's, I love you. That's why I'm trying to tell you, please don't act this way. This is not in your best interest. And man, we hug them and we kiss them. And this is what happens when God swings the paddle. He doesn't stop there. There's always opportunities for his embrace. And I believe, you know, Brother Rod has said this. I've been talking with him many times this week. Um, Why is it that a weather pattern stops over a certain area and dumps a historic amount of water? Well, you know, it's a cold weather front and a high pressure front. No, the problem is we're way too secular. The problem is we, we interpret weather as if weather is just operating according to scientific principles. No, the Bible is very clear. God is the Lord over weather. I just read in Job this morning where God determines the, the, uh, the clouds, the course of the lightning. God's in charge of everything. Now, people don't like to hear that message either. They want to give the devil credit for all these kinds of things. Listen. God is Lord over everything or he's not Lord at all. God is sovereign over everything or that just determines he's not sovereign at all. If there's one molecule on this planet that God is not in charge of, then God's not sovereign. I believe God's sovereign. And I don't believe he's punishing people there. I believe that this is an opportunity. God chooses certain places. I believe this to give an opportunity of great revival and reformation and transformation, not devastation. I mean, you know, sheetrock is not eternal. I mean, just to say this out loud, and this, I haven't even gotten the message yet, but I'm on a roll. There's nothing in your house that's all that special. You're leaving it all behind. There's not a material thing you have that's going to outlast you or that's going to outlast uh, eternity. It's not, going, it's not going with you. Sheetrock's replaceable. Carpet's replaceable. Soul's non-replaceable. And the condition of people's souls, sometimes, listen, unless God messes with your idols, he'll never get to your heart. When you're standing, how many of you know, when you're standing in the midst of devastation, and everything you put your trust in is gone, you're you're in an incredibly awesome place to have a God encounter that changes you forever. Because now, for the first time maybe in your life, you're not all enamored with your stuff and all the things that you thought would make you happy. Am I speaking to the right crowd? God loves you. God wants to enjoy you forever. And God will not let anything come between his his passionate heart for you. He's not going to let any of these little idols. In fact, the Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. 
And the only thing that cannot be shaken is God's kingdom. So here, as a pastor, here's my plea with you this morning. Build your life on things that are unshakable. Build your life on Christ Jesus. Build your life on something that no matter what happens in this world, you are safe and secure. You're in the ark, Christ Jesus. You need to be able to find Jesus in the midst of what's going on in your life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I, I want to cover some ground really fast because I know Pastor Kevin, uh, just because he's different than me, probably highlighted different things than I would have. But I want to just highlight some things I hit on last Sunday down in Charleston, just so you understand where I'm coming from. These are some foundational principles that I think are important as we jump into this whole topic of the judgment of God. Point number one I laid last week. Number one, nations belong to the Lord. I'm only going to give one verse. I could give 20 verses that support this. But look, at, look on the screen with me. Uh, Psalm 82, verse 8. We got that PowerPoint back there? Yay or nay? No PowerPoint? All right, you're just going to have to listen. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Isn't that powerful? Let me say that again. All the nations belong to God. Let me ask you, to ask you this question. Why do all the nations belong to God? It's an, important, it's an important question. He created them. Can you see why evolution is such an attack on the sovereignty and the greatness and the glory of God? Every nation in this earth exists because they were created by God and for God. It's important to understand. It's also an important reason for why you should hate evolution. All right, but anyway, point number two. Sin is a reproach to any nation. The Bible says in Proverbs fourteen thirty four, Godliness makes a nation great. But sin is a disgrace to any people. Let me ask you this question. If a nation that doesn't even know God or know his laws actually obeys God's laws by accident, what will God do to that nation? Prosper them. Because God's no respecter of persons. How many of you know there are some non-Christian people that act in Christian ways and get blessed? How many of you know you don't have to be a Christian to be generous? It usually helps us to be generous. But I know, very, I know people that aren't saved that are generous, and you know what? They prosper. There are nations that if they honor God's principles, God prospers them. There are nations that dishonor God's principles, and God says he's going to judge them. Now, this leads us to our third point. God judges sinful nations. This is Psalm chapter 9, verse 8. The Bible says he will judge the world with justice and rule the nations with fairness. Psalm 9, verse 17, the wicked go down to the grave, and it says this, this is the fate of all the nations who ignore God. This should terrify us. How I many you know to whom much has been given, much is going to be required, and God judges on the basis of your knowledge of him. In other words, a nation that's never heard of God, doesn't know God, doesn't know God's ways. God's judgment on that nation is more lenient than a nation that has walked with God, knows, knows God, knows the gospel. How I many of you know to whom much has been given, much is going to be required? So the standard of judgment on America is much higher, which should terrify us. Because we're without excuse in this country for flagrantly violating God's commandments were without excuse. George Mason, one of our founding fathers, said this, As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this world. 
By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, he says, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. When we see, I mean, you know, when 9-11 happened, it was a huge wake-up call for our nation. We've never seen that kind of attack on American soil in the history of this nation. Y'all realize that? We've never seen that before. It should have been a massive wake-up call. Was it because everybody that worked there was evil and that's why God was... No, that's not the case at all. In fact, I many of you know, just because you're a righteous person, you're living in a fallen world, it doesn't mean you're exempt from challenges or problems. In fact, as I'm going to point out, when a nation is under the judgment of God, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their nation came under judgment from God. Well, what happened to them? They were swept into captivity as well. I mean, there's a price to pay when a nation turns its back on God for all of us, including God's own people. We're going to talk about the remnant in weeks to come. We're going to talk about how God protects his people even in the midst of judgment and blesses his people. But here's the point for today's message. And this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It simply is this, that judgment always begins with God's own house, which means I'm talking to us this morning. When God judges a nation, he begins by focusing on his own people first, and he holds his own people responsible for the condition of the country. Look at 1 Peter 4, 17 with me. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what a terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. Judgment begins with God's people. I asked the question this week, why does judgment begin with God's people? Why would he start with us? I came up with four things I thought the Lord dropped in my heart. I want to hit these real quickly, and then I'm going to get into our text this morning. How many of you know, first of all, why would God judge us? First, because he's called us to exercise dominion over the earth. Who's supposed to be running the planet? We are. Part of the reason nations are judged is because ungodly people have been elected to places of power. And ungodly people enact ungodly laws. And when ungodly people promote ungodly laws and promote unrighteousness, guess what? Your nation gets whacked. Because that's the judgment that God has on nations that turn their back on God. Can you see why it's important for us to get involved? Why it's important for us to lead? Why it's important for us to engage publicly? Because if we don't, there's a vacuum that gets filled by unrighteousness. And we pay the price, listen, for our passivity and for our lack of engagement. It's sad, but it's true. Second reason, we're called to declare Christ's lordship over all of creation, which means our job is to declare Jesus as Lord. I mean, you know, we can't declare Jesus as Lord if he's not Lord over the church. And if the church looks like the world, acts like the world, if we're, if we're the same as the world and, and the way that we live and function and with our priorities and everything else, how many of you know we're not declaring the lordship of Christ? And God's glory is at stake when we fail to do that. Third reason, we've been called to be salt and light. I mean, you know, it's the church's job to shine and to shine brightly, and salt is a preservative. Salt's the reason that God has mercy and pours out his grace on even nations that are wicked. It's because of his mercy poured out on the salt and the light that the church is. It's because of us. I like to tell people, you know, when you're flying in an airplane, you're a believer and your steps are ordered of the Lord and you're on assignment, man, everybody on that airplane is safe. Why are they safe? Because you're on assignment. And I believe that God does not take the life of any believer until their time is up. So I like to tell people, hey, I'm going to Russia. Everybody on this plane, you're good because I'm on assignment. 
I say that halfway jokingly, but halfway not jokingly. I believe that. I believe that, again, it's the people of God that act as the restraining of sin in the earth. We act as the release of God's mercy and grace. We're salt, we're light. How many of you know, it's not the National Atheist Clubs that are down there building, rebuilding churches and helping people out. I don't think you'll find an atheist organization down there. I'll tell you what you do find, though. The church is mobilized in mass, and they're being salt and light in the midst of darkness. They roll up their sleeves, and they're working. They're helping. They're being a blessing. And let me give you the fourth reason very quickly here. Why does God judge this church first? Because I believe we're called to reveal the glory and the greatness of God. And you know what? When the earth is shaking and the earth is under judgment, it's under judgment because of disobedience and sin and unrighteousness and God's glory is being trampled in the streets. And how many of you know God does not allow the greatness of his name to be trampled under the feet of evil men and women for very long? Which is why judgment comes and secondly why revival comes. God brings blessing on his people. He awakens us. He causes us to love him. Why? Because his glory is at stake. How do people see the greatness of God? How do people experience God? Turn to the person next to him. Look him in the face and say, through you. All right? No pressure. Through you. Just tell him that. How many of you believe that? You're not going to find the Lord outside of somebody that looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, loves like Jesus, gives you the good news of Jesus. Am I right? How did you all come to the Lord? Sometimes people come to the Lord supernaturally. God just shows up and reveals himself, and he can do that because he's God. But how did most of us come to know the Lord? It was through somebody that was revealing the greatness of God, the good news about God, the glory of God. Am I talking to the right crowd? So can you see, God, God cannot let us be just like the world because the greatness of his name is at stake. We're missing out on our calling. We're missing out on our function. And it's, it's an urgent thing for God. So he always begins by bringing us up to speed. And thank God that he does. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I want to pull out some principles here in the time that we have left and just encourage you this morning. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. In fact, I'm going to begin reading in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and I'm going to read this passage and then highlight a few things. Um, it says, at, at that time Israel was at war with the Philistines, and the Israelite army was camped near Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek, and the Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked this question. Here's a great question. Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? How many of you know the assumption is, where with God we win? And that assumption does not change. Where with God we win. How many of you know when you're with God, there's a sense of confidence, there's a sense of, 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 of uh, boldness, there's a sense of knowing that the favor of God is on your life, that it should be measured in a tangible way. In Israel's time, it was measured in warfare, and when God was with them, they won their battles. Look what they did next, though. I want you to see this. Then they said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. If we carry it, everybody say it, if we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. We'll get to that in a moment. So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. It says, Hophni and Phinehas, these were the sons of Eli. We know they were wicked sons, were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into the camp, their shout of joy was so loud, it literally made the ground shake. 
The Philistines hear it. They're freaking out. They said, the gods have come into their camp. I'm paraphrasing. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 10. So the Philistines fought desperately, and Israel was defeated again. This time, the slaughter was great. It was 4,000 men the first time. This time, 30,000 Israelite soldiers died that day. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The ark of God was captured. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's wicked sons, were killed. And then a messenger runs uh, from the battlefield to Eli, the priest of the Lord. Eli's 98 years old at this time. He's blind. He's incredibly overweight. And the Bible says this. When the messenger gives Eli the announcement, it's found in verse 17. Israel, he says, has been defeated by the Philistines. The messenger replied, the people have been slaughtered. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed. And the ark of God has been captured. When the messenger mentioned what happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backwards from his seat beside the gate He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight, and he had been Israel's judge for 40 years. Now I want you to see what happens in verse 19. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near her time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and she gave birth. And the Bible says she died in childbirth, but before she passed away, The midwives were trying to encourage her. Don't be afraid. They said, you have a baby boy. They're trying to speak life to her. They're trying to give her something to live for her. They're trying to pull her through. But it says she did not answer or pay attention to them. And here's what I want you to see. She named the child Ichabod, which means where is the glory or the glory of God is gone. She named him this because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband were dead In verse 22, then she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. How many of you know the absence of God's presence among his people is the death knell of the church? When God's presence is not in our lives individually and corporately, it's the sign that we've begun to die as a people. Now, how many of you know why do churches die? Let me tell you why churches die. Because they just get religious and they go on with the, with the motions, but there's not a sense of holiness or righteousness or their hearts aren't right. They're not pursuing God and the blessing of God is not on their gathering. Have you ever been in situations where you've come and you know, everybody's singing the right songs and reading the right words and doing the right things, but maybe your own heart feels a million miles from God? Any of you ever been there? I've been there. And have you ever opened up your Bible in the morning and you're trying to read and you're trying to connect with God and and the Lord seems far away? Sometimes uh, it's because there are things in our life that aren't pleasing to the Lord and He's trying to get our attention, is He not? Well, guess what? Sometimes God's trying to get our attention corporately. He's trying to say, hey, what's going on? Because, I mean, you know, normal church should be we experience a visitation of the presence of God when we come together and we know that God has been in our midst. I mean, you know, that should be normal. That's not like revival season. That should be the norm. God's presence among us, doing God things among us. How many of you know God's supernatural, which means there should be a tangible sense of the supernatural presence of God? Am I speaking to the right crowd here? I'm sharing this with you because does anybody want to pursue that as a standard with me? All right, that that should be when people come. I want to go to that church. Why? Because they got 
cool lights or what? No, because God's at that church. God is there. People are being changed. Miraculous things are happening. God is moving. I want to be a part of those people. That should be our heart cry. We should. Ne- if, 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 if anybody ever puts Ichabod over this church, it's a sign again the glory of God has left. And I'm telling you, you remember Moses when God said, I'm not, I'm not going at, with you guys. You guys just go on. I'm tired. These people are rebels. Remember that when they came out of Egypt? They're rebels. God says, I've had it. And Moses pleaded with God. He said, God, I'm not going to go anywhere if you don't go with us. I mean, you know, that's the heart cry of this pastor, right, for this church. Lord, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to try to lead this congregation if you're not with us, if you're not ahead of us, you're not leading the way. I pray that prayer every week. It's a heart cry of mine. You see, because there's two things that separate us from everybody else. I mean, God's people from the rest of the world. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Again, I wish uh, we had the PowerPoint this morning. I'm not sure what happened. I'm going to try to track that down second service. But Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Get there real quick. I want you to see this. Two things that separate us from the rest of the nations of the world. Aha, there we go. I'm going to read it. This is actually verse 7. It says, For what great nation has a God as near to them, that's talking about God's presence, as near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on Him. And what great nation has decrees and regulations or precepts or principles as righteous and fair as this body of instructions that I'm giving you today? Two things that separate us from the rest of the world, God's precepts and God's presence. What are His precepts? It's the fact that God has chosen to speak to us so we don't have to be ignorant. How I mean, you know when it comes, for instance, to sexual choices or sexual options? God says, all the way back in the Bible, he said, I don't want you to have sex this way. I don't want you to have sex with, this, with these people. I don't want you to have sex with this, this, this. I don't want you to have sex in these types of relationships. No incest, no this, no that. How I mean, you know God was very specific in giving examples. That was just in the area of sexuality. He also gave dietary suggestions. Some were commandments. He also had a lot of other things he unveiled. He said, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't defraud your neighbor. How I mean, you know God has spoken, and he gave us a lot of incredible advice and counsel. And we should be saying, thank you, God, we don't have to live in the dark. Thank you, God, we don't have to experience stuff by trial and error and have our lives destroyed. Thank you, God. And God said this, if you'll honor my precepts, I'll bless you with my presence. But if you ignore my precepts, you'll forfeit my presence. That should cause us to tremble on the inside. I mean, you know, the worst thing that could happen when you're trapped in sin is for God's manifest presence to be lifted from your life. Have you ever been lost? Any of you, when you were a kid, turned around and mom and dad weren't there? And you said, hey, mom, dad, and they're not there, and instantly fear courses through your body. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And then all of a sudden, you're looking around trying to find them, but they're unfindable at that moment. There's nothing more terrifying. There's nothing more terrifying to a parent than to be in that situation. Have you ever read your scripture. I was just reading about David and reading about Job. It was interesting how the two collided. Both of them are at a passage in their life where they're saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? There's nothing more terrifying than to call to the Lord and to feel like you're not getting an answer. Sometimes he's wanting us to walk in faith, but other times he's trying to get our attention. 
and he's really wanting to deal with some heart issues in our life. Open up your Bibles to this next passage very quickly. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. Proverbs 1, verse 24. Let the weight of this hit you right in the gut. It's powerful. The Lord says, I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice. You rejected the correction that I offered. So I will laugh when you are in trouble. I will mock you when disaster overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster engulfs you like a cyclone, and anguish and distress overwhelm you, when they cry for help, God says, I'm not going to answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they're not going to find me. Why? This is important. Why, 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 why? For they hated knowledge, and they chose not to fear the Lord, and they rejected my advice, and they paid no attention when I corrected them. This is scary, is it not? Now notice what's happening here. It's not that God is reaching out and punishing. Here's what God's doing. He's saying, look, I reached out to you over and over and over again. I reached out to you. I sent people to you. I, spe- I spoke the word to you. I gave you my Bible. I, how many times have those people loved you, witnessed to you, invited you to church, counseled you, helped you, whatever? You're not listening. So you know what? Fine. Here's what God says. Fine. Have it your way. Wait, Lord, don't do that. I wasn't serious. Please, I was just kidding. Ah, that gives me the chills. Seeing the backside of God as he walks away and says, fine, do it your way. See how it works for you. See, I believe this, and I pray to God this doesn't happen, but I believe this. The pain threshold in this nation has got to increase before people start getting serious about God and the fear of the Lord and honoring God with their lives. God is going to absolutely dry up every one of our idols in this country. God is going to absolutely bring this nation in mercy to her knees. And here's the sad thing. We should be the ones responding first. But unfortunately, many times, the idols that the world has are the same idols that the church has. Safety and security and comfort. Am I speaking to the right crowd? Just protect us, God. Protect our borders. Protect us from the bad guys. Right? And make sure there's good jobs in America so we can all live the American dream. How many election cycles have we seen this played out over and over and over again? And God's trying to say, there's something greater than all those things. I'm the source of all those things. Why don't you love me and follow me and honor me? I pray it doesn't happen, but from the bottom of my gut, I'm just telling you, I believe we're going to come into a greater shaking, not that any one of these candidates is going to rescue America and take us into a brand new golden age of this country. How many of you know it's the church that's going to take America into a golden age? It's the church on her knees. It's the church in repentance. It's the church loving, serving, leading, being salt and light, and crying out to God for a visitation, a fresh visitation. That's what's going to save our country. Nothing less. So what are the sins, Pastor, what are the sins of the church that we need to focus on? Let me wrap up with this. What are the sins of the church? If you go back to Eli and the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I want to highlight three things that are major sins that we need to examine our heart with this morning. 
The first sin is the promoting religion over relationship with God. Wasn't it interesting, when they got in trouble, they didn't run to God, they ran to an image or an object which God was associated with. They ran after the ark. They ran after the gold box that contained, you know, the Ten Commandments and the Moses uh, uh, rod that budded and, and the manna, remember, that, that, that was in the ark. There was all symbols of God's mercy and grace covered by the mercy seat. There was covered by blood. And, and the Shekinah glory of God was over that mercy seat. But I mean, you know, it wasn't the box. It wasn't what was in the box. It was the God of the box. The box was just a, something people could identify with. But this is what they said. Send it out there. Get, get the ark. Send it out. It can't save you. It's an object. And listen, religion will never save you. Going to church will never save you. Doing religious things does not save you. This is about a relationship, an encounter, a heart encounter with a person. And when you lose the person, you send boxes out to try to do your business, and boxes don't work. They went from several thousand killed to 30,000 killed. That's what religion does for you. God says, I'm not after your outward performances. I'm after your heart. I want a relationship with you, church. Don't be religious. The world's got enough religious people. God is always after our hearts. Even when we're going through our toughest times, what's he after? He's after you. He loves you. Everything you go through in life is meant to push you back to your Father who loves you. The high moments are meant for you to give praise to him. The low moments are meant for you to find him and hold on to him and trust him. All of life. Everything in life, I don't care what happens to us, every single thing is meant for one purpose, to reveal something about God's love for you and for me. Stop being religious, God says, and have a relationship with me. Point number two is compromise over conviction. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, it says Eli was old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. What were their sons doing? Their sons who were priests. His sons who were supposed to be men of God. His sons were seducing the young women who were assisting at the entrance of the temple. So now we have people who are supposed to be godly men revealing the glory of God, but are so carnal, they're getting involved in seducing ladies who are coming to church to worship God. In other words, the sexual sin in the church is just the same as a sexual sin outside of the church. And Eli made a futile attempt to deal with his sons. And in the end, it cost him their lives. We are seeing a wholesale sellout of the church today in compromise to be fashionable and to draw crowds. I'm just telling you, I want to remind you, our priority here is to draw an audience of one. If we draw an audience of one, God will take care of the fruit. But if you bend the gospel to try to make it accommodate the world and what the world is now adapting or adopting to, I'm telling you, you're guilty of compromise and not conviction. 
Conviction stands for what's true, no matter what anybody thinks, no matter what the price of that belief is, no matter what it's going to cost you. And Eli ended up losing his family because he didn't have the courage to stand up for God's family. Did you hear what I just said? There are people that will lose their family and their children because they didn't demonstrate conviction in their own discipleship and their own walk with God and their kids suffer because of it. Pastor, you're not being very encouraging. I'm just trying to be real. We deal with this every week in the church. How do you expect your children to rise to a water level higher than your own if you don't set a standard for them to shoot for? How are we expect to be different from the world and impact the world when our convictions are not even strong and we're constantly compromising and bending the gospel? You see, the latest pastor that came out with the book that totally goes against God's sexual ethics and basically puts a blessing on sex outside of marriage. Now again, hear me. People make mistakes. People sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Thank God for his mercy. I'm not condemning anybody here today that's ever made a mistake or else we'd all be condemned. Amen? That's not what my purpose is. But I am saying this. Where we know God has spoken, our job is to make sure that if we've missed him, we say, Lord, forgive me because I want to please you and I want your blessing and presence over my life. Am I speaking to the right crowd this morning? And I want to hit a third sin of the church. Religion over relationship, compromise over conviction, and number three, pleasure over presence. First Samuel chapter, 12, chapter 2, verse 12 says this. The sons of Eli were scoundrels. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> God called them scoundrels. Why were they scoundrels? Because they had no respect for the Lord. And hear this. They had no respect for their duties as priests. And verse 17 says this. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. They were like Esau, who was willing to sell his birthright for nothing. And I believe we have people today, if we're not careful in in the Lord's house, that love carnal pleasure instead of the pleasure of God's blessing over their lives. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5, There will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And the Bible says this, stay away from people like that. Stay away from people like that. Lovers of carnal pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, the Bible says that in his his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. How many of you know God, this message is not against pleasure. This message is against Righteous, God-blessed, lasting pleasure as opposed to momentary, temporary, flash-in-the-pot pleasures that only satisfy our flesh for a moment. But damn our souls forever. Do we love the presence of God more than we love momentary pleasures that satisfy our short-end, short-term ends? They say, Pastor, this is kind of a heavy message this morning. I'm just trying to be a messenger. I'm believing we're going to see the glory of God in amazing ways down the pike here, but it's not going to come without a mixture of the judgment of God because he's holy and righteous and just. 
Now see, here's the, here's the problem, and please hear me on this. This is why some of you need to take these courses like the nature and attributes of God. Come on. Because here's, here's the point. When you emphasize one aspect of God's character to the neglect of others, you create God in your own image, and you are an idolater. So for instance, let me give you an example. Well, Pastor, I don't think God does those things. I think God just loves everybody, and since Jesus died on the cross, God just loves everybody. Well, that's true. God is love. God doesn't have love. He is love. He's the source of love. He's abs- no one's going to question that. But you know what else he is? He's holy. And you know what else he is? He's just. Which means because he's holy, he can't sweep our sin under the carpet and pretend like it doesn't exist. And because he's loving, it doesn't mean that he's going, oh, well, you all deserve to be punished, but because I'm so loving, I'll be unjust. I mean, you know, if a judge in the courtroom knows somebody's guilty, but says, I know you're guilty, but I just feel compassion for you, so you're off the hook. I mean, you know, justice is trampled. So here's the amazing thing that God does. God is holy and just and loving all at the same time. And the one who has taken our punishment is Jesus. And the way that you find safety in this world is being hidden in Christ. Christ is the ark in the midst of the judgment. To be in Christ. How are you in Christ? It means you've submitted your life to him. It means you're not practicing willful sin. I'm just going to read this. You just got to hear this again. Last verse, and I'm going to shut up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that unrighteous people are not going to inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. I'm going to say that one again. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, Greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, why are Christians writing books saying that people living that way are okay? Because they're deceived. The Bible goes on to say this, such were some of you, but you've been delivered, transformed, Save. Christ has encountered your life. You're not that way any longer. Let me just say this openly. We have a congregation of folks who probably fit the bill on every one of those. Guilty as I said, okay, who fits the sin number one? Well, hey, all right. Who's sin number two? We'd have it all covered, let me just tell you. In fact, I said this before, even to join the club, you've got to admit that you're a sinner and that you've missed the point. You missed God. You missed his law. You've lived in, as a rebel. That's how you join the club. So y'all with me. It says in a condemning message, but this is straightforward. I'm just telling you, if you're doing any of those things and you're sitting here today going, everything's cool, you're deceived. That's the message this Sunday. If God is bringing judgment on a nation, I want to make sure I'm squeaky clean. Let me just tell you, there's not a week that goes by that your pastor isn't pleading the blood of Jesus over my own life lest any of you think I glow in the dark and walk on water. It's not happening, all right? But I'll tell you this, I'm smart enough to know that we've been called for God's greatness and glory. He's holding us to that. It's a great call. We don't want to treat that lightly, and we want to make sure we're living in a way that honors the Lord. 
And so this is just what I thought might be fitting for us to do at the close of the service today, is I just want to open the altar up, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to be dismissed, and we'll have a chance to give our offerings this morning. But I just want to give you an opportunity to say, you know what, if God's speaking something in your heart about something that's not right right now, it's like a doctor saying, hey, you can't keep living this way. You're going to die, right? The doctors give us those messages. Hey, stop eating this. Stop doing it. You got to exercise. What, you know, why do they tell us that? Because they hate us? No, because they love us. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to some areas in your life where you need to just say, Lord, I, I just want to repent. God, change my heart. God, get me close to you. I, God, I, here's, here's the cry. Lord, I want your presence in my life in a powerful way, a tangible way. Then let's just do that this morning. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the men go ahead and get stationed at the door. We're going to receive an offering on the way out. But the band's just going to worship. And I encourage you, whether you stay in your seat, whether you want to kneel at the altar, whatever you want to do, but can we just examine us today and make sure we're good, make sure that our hearts are alive, our hearts are fresh, that, that we are enjoying God and enjoying His presence. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for the times when you jerk our chain a little bit because you love us. You're trying to correct us. You're trying to keep us close to your heart. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. Keep us close to your heart. And Lord, as we have a chance to leave today, we want to get our accounts right with you. We want to make sure that we're covered in your blood, that we're forgiven of our sins, that that we're in good standing with you, God. So Lord, I ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit right now, God, that you touch hearts. Lord, prick hearts. Make our consciences be tender and soft before you, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the saints that are down in Louisiana and the, the people that have been impacted, that God, that there would be a great salvation that comes out of that area, a great revival, Lord, that would be stirred up. And Father, that you would use the body of Christ to be salt and light to see these people's homes and their lives restored. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to sow into that. And we pray that, that uh, we give and we give generously, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen, amen. All right, don't forget to sow. If you need prayer for anything, come on down. If you don't know Christ this morning, I encourage you, come on down and just say, Pastor, I need to get my life right with the Lord. We want to pray with you this morning, all right? Have a great day. Marriage class, 4 o'clock. Let's do business with the Lord.